I knew a woman in Evansville who used to sell pudgies. And she did it by having about 25 of them in the basement and having a record just kept on playing. You know what? You're sick. You need a doctor. <laughs> and uh, the people would hear that. Oh, that's so sweet. And they'd want to buy those pudgies. Well, thank the Lord. I, I can just tell you this. I don't want to get personal about myself, but I have been plagued with headaches for many years, but I haven't had once since September 8th. How about that? So uh, the doctor is being used of God to help me, I'm sure. Uh, wouldn't you love to just listen to that music all night? Well, I'll get down there. And <laughs> oh, what? Everyone with a message. Did you hear that one that is the song of the soul set free? I just want to shout out and sing right along. And then Isaac Watts, isn't that, just think of the word, listen, when you go home, look at that, that hymn again. When I survey the wondrous cross. Somebody gave me a hymn book, Bob uh, Farrier in California, gave me a hymn book of all Isaac Watts hymns, almost 300 of them. And I tell you, that was a songwriter. He was really something under God. And this is one of his hymns. And if you didn't really think when the choir was singing, go home and get that hymn and just read it and think. Meditate on it. You'll really enjoy it. Now, will you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Galatians. That's in the New Testament, in Paul's epistles. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians 5, 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Perhaps you noticed on your program that the subject assigned to me for tonight is the last phrase of that verse. By love, serve one another. Now let's have a little exegesis first and find out exactly what this says. It's my prayer and my aim as I study the Word. And I ask God so often, help me to get the sense of this now. Words are very important, and I'm, I expect to deal with some tonight. But the sense of what he's, what is he trying to get across? What is God trying to say to me? By love, serve one another. Now, first of all, this does not say serve one another lovingly. It does not say serve one another in love. It says, rather, by love, serve one another. That word by is a very good translation. We don't have to change it through, on account of, because of, because of your love, serve one another. This implies, of course, that we do or should truly love one another. If he had just said, serve one another lovingly, it might be a command, go to that brother and serve him and do it lovingly. But that might be rather hard to do. He rather first gets at the root of things. Do you truly love your brother? You should serve him because you love him. That's the idea. By love, through love, on account of your love for him. 
serve one another. It should be our service to our brethren. And my dad used to say he was from Holland, and his English was not exactly all that it should be, but he used to say, and that means sisters too. But <laughs> said brothers, and that means sisters too. He never left the sisters out. By love, through love, on account of our love for each other, we should serve one another. Now a word about the word love. This is the chief word for love in Paul's epistles. If you've heard Billy Graham, he uses that word a great deal, agape, and he'll call it that. That's the Greek word, agape, we should love one another. Now, beloved, if ever love, as the Bible, and especially Paul, speaks of it, has been perverted, it has been perverted today. And I've heard so much of a different kind of a love till I've had it up to here, beloved. Love, 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 you know. And it's not the kind of love that is concerned about its fellow man. It's the kind of love that tolerates everything, and there's a great, great difference. In the world, almost all love is sort of a romantic love. You should, uh, this young man, you're not going to uh, really have a happy married life unless you have a physical attraction for that young lady. There has to be that kind of love. It's all sex and conjugal love. The, it's gone into the church, too. The new evangelicals have how many books, how-to books? And one is how to have a happy sex life, though well on in years. I was speaking some time ago in a university in Arkansas. And uh, I had a really blessed time. These hundreds and hundreds of young people listening with mouths and eyes wide open. And some of the professors as well, very earnest attention. But after the service, the dean who had introduced me uh, left the front doors of the chapel. It was a pretty big place for a chapel. We'd be happy if it was a church. But he left the front doors, and there was his wife. It was an afternoon meeting. They'd been there all day. He had introduced me to her, but you'd think he hadn't seen her for years, and it was an emotional uh, meeting again. And he, as they say, went into a clinch, and when he kissed her, I thought he'd swallow her. You know, that kind of a, oh, and that, it's, it made me feel badly. I thought, here's a man of dignity parading something that should be sacred and beautiful and parading it before everybody. There's a great deal of this today, beloved. It's in the world, and it is certainly in the professing church as well. I read in Christian Life, I think I can name the magazine, not long ago, a 50-year-old a psychiatric counselor, Christian counselor. He was 50 years old, and he was counseling a woman who was having such an unhappy married life. And he said, and I quote, I memorized it. I, rem I didn't have to. I remembered it that well. He said, we held hands and cried unabashed. And he was proud to write that in a Christian magazine uh, in an article on counseling. Another pastor gets up and 
says, I'm, I'm glad that my wife and I have a happy sex life. What kind of thing are we getting into, beloved? I'm glad we had some very wholesome, very, very appropriate and careful discussion of this among our pastors uh, right at this, uh, this session. But what kind of a thing is this to get into the church? Husband and wife love how to? Let's see what the Bible says about it. Ephesians, please. Chapter 5. And this is indeed husband and wife love. Listen. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And beloved, the rest will follow. Somebody says to me, you're not even married. You're not even, uh, I'm not married now, but you don't even have children. What do you know about it? Well, we don't. We didn't. And we, I don't. <laughs> but we wish we did. We just couldn't have children. Twice we tried to adopt two children, and the Lord shut the door, and we learned later why. But that has nothing to do with it. What does the Bible say? If you want a happy married life, my dear young man and young lady, start here. Start with a love that would give itself for its mate, that would die for her, and she that would die for him. You know, sometimes the world, some people in the world, as the Lord Jesus said, are wiser in something than people in the professing church are. I heard Sam Levinson some time ago. How big was his family? Ten children, wasn't it? Awful lot of kids anyway. And he was asked on the TV, did your mother, did your mother and dad really love each other? Said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, well, did they, did you see them embrace or kiss each other often? He said, kiss each other? They had to raise ten kids. <laughs> but he said, they would die for each other and they would have died for any of us. Well, that reminded me of my own dad and mother. They had eight children. That's quite a few. And we didn't see a lot of embracing and kissing. They kissed us more than they kissed each other in front of us. <laughs> but I tell you, they would have died for each other. And I know there was romance, too. I'm sure of that. But that was a, that was a private. That was a sacred thing. They didn't go parading that in front of everybody. They really loved each other with this love. And all the rest, all the rest that's good will surely follow. Now, we're not really talking about uh, husband and wife love here in this verse. We're talking about the love that we should have for each other as members of the body of Christ. But my point is, he uses this same word, agape. By love, serve one another. Remember how John says this, Christ laid down his life for us. Shouldn't we lay down our lives for the brethren? Shouldn't we be willing to? And listen, there is too little of that, isn't there, today? I must say about my own heart, I'm sorry, but it's a confession, an honest confession, they say, is good for the soul. I'm not the kind that, I don't think there's a soul in the world I, I just hate or dislike with any to any degree. But I don't, think that I'm in love what I should be either. It's far easier for me, I think, to criticize 
inside. I try not to make it too public. But I think it's much easier for me to find fault inside than it is to really have a heart of love go out to my brethren in Christ. I do love them. I don't mean to say that I don't. But we're living in a day when there's so much discontent, so much fault-finding, so much criticism, so much tearing apart, that I think it affects us as members of the church, too. And we're apt to have that kind of an attitude instead of truly loving each other. And what kind of a church we would be. How powerful would be our testimony. How joyful our experience. If we served each other out of love, if we really loved each other as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now then, there's just one more word here that we should deal with before we go into the context and the passage itself. By love, serve one another. Now that's comes from the old root, the noun doulos, slave. Oh, that's a touchy word. They don't dare talk about that anymore. I have a book about God and human relations. It was an article in the searchlight years ago. And uh, God says, if you're a slave, at that time there were many slaves. Don't try to get out of it. Serve your master. Serve him with, as though you're serving the Lord. You have a master in heaven. And he'll reward you. You're not working for him. You're working for him. And uh, he wasn't for slavery. He Then he talks to the master. He says, give to your servants that which is just and equal. But the point is, he speaks to us in each case and how we loathe being demeaned. <laughs> how hurt we soon are if we have a place a little lower than somebody else. And we think, I should have that place. Well, what's he doing there, you know? Oh, and those thoughts don't even have to form in our minds. They can be subconsciously there. <coughs> but he says, by love, be slaves to each other. Now then, just quickly, the context. Just the immediate context. There's a larger context, which would be interesting to go into, but would take a few nights. So we'll just go into the verse itself. Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Let's stop there. Isn't that great? God has called us to liberty. He wants us to be free, and it is wonderful to breathe the air of freedom, isn't it? Especially when it is freedom from the slavery of sin and the bondage of sin, and even more especially when it is slavery from the condemnation of sin. Oh, to be free from those, how wonderful. I think of an illustration. Joseph. Joseph was in a dungeon in Egypt. He was in bondage, probably in chains. He was a slave the condemnation of death, just waiting for death in a cell, when all of a sudden in one day he's made the prime minister of Egypt, second in command only under the 
emperor himself, under Pharaoh himself. Now, in a way, that's the kind of liberty we had. We were under the bondage of sin and under its condemnation, waiting only for death. And all of a sudden, one day, we trusted Christ as our Savior, and we were made free. We were given not only freedom, but the kind of freedom that occupies a very high position. Raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. What liberty is ours? I've got a little booklet entitled Sonship, and that's what it's about. We're no longer children that God has to say, you know, don't do this, don't do that, do that. No, no. Immediately when we're saved, we are given the position of full-grown sons. Think of it. We have the key to the car and the combination of the safe and the key to the safe deposit vault. We have everything. Everything is ours because we are in Christ and we're joint heirs with him. What freedom? Whomsoever the Son shall make free shall be how free. Let's all say it. You did it almost as well as Reverend Ike's congregation. I'm glad of that. You meant it. Whomsoever the Son shall make free shall be free indeed. But now, why did you want to be free? Why did you come to Christ in the beginning? To be free to sin? No, no, that would be license. That wouldn't be liberty. Then you'd be coming from one slavery into another. You came to be free from sin, didn't you? The time came when all of a sudden your conscience caught up with you, and that can be a dreadful thing. I remember in my own life, when I was first saved, oh, that night was a terrible night of conviction. My brother, the same night, John, we were both saved the same night. And we listened to a man, a blind evangelist, who spoke on Revelation, where almost the end of Revelation, where he says, but the, the, the uh, unbelieving and the so-and-so and the so-and-so, the fearful and the unbelieving so-and-so will have their part in the lake of fire. And he showed us how that word uh, fearful simply means coward. And he pointed his finger right at us. And he said, do you know why you're not saved? You're a coward. You won't face up to your own condition. You won't acknowledge that you're a sinner and bound for hell and condemned by the justice of God. You're a coward. You won't face up to your condition. That's explained. That's why the word coward comes first there. Oh, and my brother and I were so guilty that night. We would never have dared to walk out of the Star of Hope mission during a meeting, but we were afraid of that invitation. The invitation was coming. And we walked out and we went home. And you know what happened after Dad and Mother got home? They got a phone call. This woman said to Mr. Sam, I'm awfully sorry to have to say this, but I saw your sons, Neil and John, going home, and I'm afraid they've been drinking. <laughs> That's how under conviction we were. We were practically staggering home. As it says about the two on their way to Emmaus, it says they walked, but it doesn't say they walked on, they walked about. <laughs> they, they were so grief-stricken they didn't know what to do or where to go. 
But I thank God for that night. I thank God for that night we were so convicted of sin it was like apple pie for my brother to lead us both to Christ that night. <laughs> there was just nothing to it. We were right ready for it. And I think that's the missing ingredient in, in evangelism today. One missing ingredient is very little conviction of sin. So what I'm getting at is if we came to Christ truly, we came to be free from sin, didn't we? It had caught up with us. Our consciences had condemned us as guilty sinners in the sight of God. We were sick and tired of our sinning. We wanted to quit and we didn't know how. And we came to Christ and he set us free. As Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, not under the condemnation any longer, but under grace. And we were free. And I'll never forget when that verse first hit me. Christ died for our sin. And I have seen it a thousand times. We read the Bible at every meal and again when we went to bed at night. How often I've seen that verse, but it has never spoken to me. And now it did. Let me say this, my dear friend, if there is anybody here that came to Christ for any other reason than to get deliverance from sin and its condemnation, you had better question your the sincerity or the, the reality of your conversion. Now then, you've been called unto liberty. Oh, what a calling. God says, come on, you're free. You're an agent of mine. You're a full-grown son in Christ. But, or only, use not liberty for an excuse, <laughs> for an occasion to the flesh. The flesh, of course, that's that old word, sarks. It's the old human nature still with it. God didn't eradicate him. God didn't kill him, not yet. He's there, the old man and the new man too. And as we heard this afternoon, some of us, we are experientially to put off the old man. In one way, he's been put off. He says he's been put off. The Ephesians and Colossians both speak of that. We have put off the old man. When we trusted Christ, that is positionally. Ah, but now experientially, we're to put off the old man, to reckon him dead. What's the next word? Indeed, indeed unto sin. But alive, now we are alive unto God in Christ. So he says, don't use your liberty. Some people, after they get saved, they came to Christ for the right reason. But now they're tempted to do this and that that might not be pleasing to God, and they excuse themselves on the basis that they are now under grace. And you're not going to bring me under the law again, are you? They say. Uh, Paul says, I am, and I think that's the proper too. He says, I'm not under the law, but I'm in law to Christ. I want to do. His law is, is indeed written on my heart. I want to do what he says. That's the want to. Isn't that the big difference? So want to, and if we don't sincerely, truly want to please God and love him and serve him, then I say we'd better question the reality of our salvation. We may stumble and fall. We may fail him ever so often. But what do we want to do, and how sincerely do we want to do it? 
So then, brethren, you've been called unto liberty, and don't give it up. How does the sixth, uh, the fifth chapter, of the first verse stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. But being free, what do you want freedom to do? What do you want to be free to do? And if you're truly saved, I know what you want to do. You want to do what pleases God. And you want to get rid of everything that, that fails him. If I think of it right, and I believe I do, every believer here tonight, night after night after night, you say it again. You say to the Lord, if you haven't said it many times during the day, Oh, Lord, Lord, please make something of me. Make of me what I ought to be. Lord, help me to do this. Help me to do that. You want to please him, and you sincerely do. And that's what this whole verse is based on. Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to self, to the flesh, to please that ego. But by love, serve, be slaves to one another. How does that Paul say in First Corinthians nine nineteen? Isn't it? Paul says, "Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself the slave of all, that I may win some." He wants to win them for Christ, and he makes himself their servant so that he can win them. Well, then, by love, serve one another. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter thirteen. Romans. Chapter 13, you no doubt know this verse, but I would like to emphasize it and uh, impress it on every heart here tonight. Chapter 13 and verse 8. Oh, no man anything. But don't stop there. You do owe every man the greatest, the greatest debt. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Most people think, I owe nobody anything, but I should. Oh, no, 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 no. You do owe him love. You say, why do I owe another man love? Because Christ, when he saved you, told you that he died for both you and him. That's why Paul says, I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Why was he a debtor to them? He had never seen them. They were at Rome, the ones he was talking about. Why was he indebted to them? Because Christ had died not only for him, but for all men. And it was his bounden duty to tell them about it. And I'm so glad he went on. So, as much as in me is, I'm ready. Are you? Am I? ready to pay that obligation by the grace of God, owe no man anything, but to love one another. Love gives. Love bears. Love understands. Love serves. Love does everything that will prove a blessing to the object love. I think of two illustrations here. There are oh, so many scriptures on these things. We could turn to 1 Corinthians 13 alone and see what love is and what love does. And that's that same word again. 
But I think of two illustrations from the gospel records. Let's turn to Luke 10, if you will, please. There's one illustration of, uh, I want to take these two, one of the, our love as it should be shown to the unsaved, to those without, and our love toward one another. Beloved, the Bible says, God is love. That's why I am sure, my dear unsaved friend, he loves you. Some people have gone, well, what I feel is to extremes, and they say it's so wonderful to feel, and I'm not, I don't mean this is wrong, it's so wonderful to feel that Christ died for me, for Cornelius R. Sam. Well, that is wonderful, and it is true, but that can be become pure selfishness unless we cry from the housetop and mean it with all our hearts, God loves you. God is love. Is it possible that he does not love the vast majority of mankind? No, he speaks of a world that he came into. And he says, God so loved the world. God didn't con come to, con Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but to save. And beloved, that is his heart's desire. I don't have, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. God is not willing, says Peter, that any should perish. He doesn't want them to perish. But of course, his desire and what he purposes, those are two often different things. You say, well, can't God do what he wants? No. Well, he wouldn't want to do anything wrong, that's sure. But God can't bless or save someone who doesn't want to be blessed. He doesn't force things down our throat. He doesn't deal with us as automatons. And so God does have great love, and Christ came because he loved you, my unsaved friend. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a, a ransom for all to be testified. This is part of the Pauline message. To be testified in due time, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Now then to Luke 10. Just look at this account here. The 27th verse of Luke 10. He answering said, this is the lawyer, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And the Lord said, you said that right. That man's, that's the chief law. Well, he wanted to justify himself and he said, well, who's my neighbor? You remember the story, verse 30? Jesus answering it said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Well, the priest came along, but he looked. He passed by on the other side. There might be other 
bandits lurking in those bushes or in those trees. The Levite passed by too. He saw him and he passed by. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, verse 33, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to a hotel and took care of him. He stayed with him that night. Many people forget that little detail. He stayed with him that night, and on the morrow when he departed, he took two pence, gave it to the host, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest when I come again, I will repay. Now here's, there's a dispensational, beautiful dispensational letter here, or lesson here, but to apply it to what we've just been reading about loving our brethren and loving here, loving our neighbors, there's more than just loving our brethren. Our hearts should be filled with love for our fellow men. This Samaritan didn't ask, like evidently the priest and the Levite did, if I help him, what will happen to me? He was just practically killed by bandits. They may want my money, too. And they passed by on the other side. He didn't ask that. What he asked was, if I don't help him, what will happen to him? You see what Paul says? Don't uh, use this liberty as an occasion to the flesh, to self, but by love serve one another. But there's another illustration, and with this I close, a very beautiful one in the 13th chapter of John. You know the story there. The end of the first verse says about our Lord, he's in the upper room now with his apostles, and right during his passion, that is, is the Passion Week, we call it, and this day of, ah, oh, the cross is coming within a few hours. They were arguing about who was going to have the highest place in the kingdom. Think of it. What it says here, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Isn't that beautiful? When he loves you, he never lets you down. He doesn't love you for a while and say, but I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> no. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith they were girded. Now, here again, there is a great spiritual lesson uh, outside of the one I want to bring, and I'll just mention it so that you understand it. Uh, remember, Peter said, don't you wash my feet. Peter didn't think of washing his feet. When they came in, Peter didn't say, let me wash your feet. That was the place of a slave, and Peter was equal with everybody else there. 
Why should he be a servant any more than John or any more than Thomas? But now when the Lord begins to wash his feet, he goes, oh, don't you wash my feet, I won't have it. Oh, he said, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with it. Oh, then Peter, you know Peter, bless his heart. He was quick on the trigger, wasn't he? He said, oh, then wash me all over, my hands and my face and everything. The Lord says, no, that's all washed. You've all been washed except Judas. And he that is washed needeth not but to wash his hands and feet. You know, that comes from an Old Testament uh, fact. One of the parts of the law, one of the segments of the law, the priest, before he served in the tabernacle, he had to take a bath. He was washed all over. But having done that just once when he was inducted into the priesthood, that's the baptism of the priest, by the way, he was washed all over. That being done, every day when he went to serve, he would have to wash his hands and his feet. That spoke of his service and of his walk. Now, here the Lord evidently puts the emphasis on the walk. But the basic lesson that he teaches here is found in verse 14. Uh, that is, that he teaches to them. If then, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now, I'm sure he said this with great love, for he loved them unto the end, it says so. He was not critical. He was trying to help them. And if I've left you an example, things will really go well if you'll do to each other what I have done to you. You came into this place, nobody offered to wash anybody else's feet. He implies that. Nobody offered to wash my feet. Now I've washed your feet. That was the place of a slave. He says, you do it to one another. Well, this, it seems to me, in light of the spiritual lesson we just saw, is most important to us. We should serve each other as slaves because we really love each other. That's why he did it. It's introduced by the fact that he loves them unto the end. And I think sometimes that where we need each other most is in our behavior and in our theology, to use a big word, in our doctrine, in our doctrine, in our conduct. And that is often where we help each other least. I read somewhere where a comedian said, you, it's so much harder to be a comedian today. You can't tell any jokes anymore. You can't tell them on the Negroes, they'll be hurt. You can't tell them on the Poles, they'll be hurt. You can't tell them on the Irish, they'll be hurt. You can't tell them on the Germans, you can't tell them on the Dutch, certainly, they'll be hurt. <laughs> you can't tell any jokes anymore. And I remember the day when such stories went around and it was just fun. Everybody took it and laughed. And did. But today we've come to a day, as I said at the beginning of this service, where it seems we're all so touchy. <laughs> we've come to a place where, oh, look out now, be careful. And they have to be so careful that finally it gets to where it's just love is tolerant. Do we love each other enough to wash each other's feet when it's necessary spiritually? A brother begins to depart from the proper path, doctrinally or spiritually or morally, 
Aren't we more apt to criticize him and to say to each other, let's pray for him, it's too bad how he's going, instead of talking to him, not lovingly merely, but because we love him and he consented. You know the best way to work with the Jew, don't you? He's got to know you love him. If the Jew knows that you love him, oh, he'll give you the best bargains. <laughs> and he will be, he, that really touches the Jew if he really feels you love him. Well, that's so in general with us, isn't it? Can this brother feel, can he sense that I truly love him? And that's why I have come with this word, perhaps, about his conduct or about his doctrine. Well, I must close, but I can't help but think, of course, of chapter 6 here, verse 1. If a man be overtaken in a... Now, he's not talking about one who lives in sin. He says, those that sin, those that practice sin, rebuke before all. And that's the ministry that's necessary, too, that others may fear. But now he's talking to a brother, about a brother who was overtaken in a fall, in a fault. He was tempted and he fell. He was tempted and he yielded. And it says a fault. Perhaps he's not even dealing with this. We have so many faults. The word here is not the deepest word for sin at all. And uh, so what does he say the spiritual man will do? The man that's spiritual will draw his skirts around him and say, I would never trip over a stone over that stone. I've never done it and I never would. We don't know what we would do if we were in the same situation. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. Because in every one of our hearts is the seed of every evil. We have Adam within us. So he says, ye that are spiritual, restore him. Restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. It must be done out of love because you realize how precarious your own. Oh, how thin is that hairline between standing and falling many a time. So he says, ye that are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The man who married us was a truly great man of God, Lou Wade Godnell of the Bible Institute of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia years ago, great man. And I remember him referring to John 13 one time about the Lord washing the disciples' feet and his saying, you ought to do that to each other. But he said, there are three rules that I would recommend as you wash each other's feet. Number one, don't have the water too hot. That's true. Number two, be sure to dry the feet off again with a towel when you're through. Don't keep looking askance at him, you know, because he's not quite as good as you are. Number three, be willing to have your own feet washed. It says you ought to do it to one another. And the next thing you may find yourself departing from the right path. And then it will be a favor if he in love speaks to you. So this is a great passage, isn't this a great little phrase? 
You've been called into liberty, but don't use it to serve self, but out of love, serve one another. May God help us to do it. I, I surely wouldn't want to say, as some people, there's no love in the church lately. We ought to love each other more. I don't, no, 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 not at all. But there's so love, little love in the world. And that does affect the church, does it not? It naturally has. Don't you remember? Iniquity shall abound, and therefore the love of many shall wax cold. You see, the one does have an effect on the other. And it helps sometimes, as they say in the world, lay the cards on the table, <laughs> you see, to put it all out in the open. And to, if, when we see what the situation is and understand what it is, we will be forbearing with the other man when perhaps he's a little critical. And we will try, by love, to serve one another. My mother, bless her heart, she was a great woman, a great woman. She ran like a regiment, although she was never bossy, but she had a family of ten. One had a, we all had to learn to wash dishes, do the beds, dust floors, but we were, jobs were delegated, you know, every morning before we went to school. We had to do this, and when we came home, we had to do that. It was good for us. My mother used to say, you might get married and your wife might break her arm. <laughs> she always had that same argument. But she was a dear soul. And you know what she used to say? I've never forgotten it. She didn't say it in these words because she had a very Holland accent. And, but she said, always be very exacting with yourself and very understanding with others. That's it, isn't it? There it is right there. May God help us to do that by love, out of sheer love. Serve one another. Thank you.